to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N, Tulsa.org. We live in a day in an age that is marked by noise, right? And there are, there are competing voices all around us telling us what's important, telling us what is worth our time, worth our money, worth our emotions, worth our affections, telling us what's right and wrong, telling us what to believe, telling us what is truth. Uh, it, it's probably not an overstatement to say that our world is so oversaturated today by, by information, by misinformation, and it could be very easy to be overwhelmed by all of these, com- these competing voices, to know what to believe, as these voices scream all around us, telling us what to believe, and therefore, based off of what we believe, how we should then live. Uh, one of my favorite authors, A.W. Tozer, he's got a book called Knowledge of the Holy, and he says something that has stuck with me throughout uh, my life. In the opening pages of that book, Tozer says this. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He goes on to say, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous, if you don't know what that means, I had to look it up, the most portentous or crucial facts about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he is, what, what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. See, what you believe about God, it forms the foundation of everything else. It forms your worldview, that lens through which you see and understand and interpret and act upon every aspect of life, from the granular all the way to the cosmic level. Our beliefs have consequences, right? And so our view of God, who he is, his nature, his purposes, uh, why he saves, how he saves, what he requires of his people subsequently, these aren't really secondary issues that we can agree to disagree over with. If we get God wrong, we get everything wrong. This truly is life and death. And, and in our postmodern, post-objective truth society, that, that message really doesn't preach well, right? Like black and white about God, about the gospel. But we'll see this morning that what is truth really isn't up to us at all. We don't get to determine what truth is. God alone has that right because he's creator of all things. And he has plainly been revealing truth ever since the beginning. Uh, when Sankey said I could preach any uh, psalm this morning, I immediately went to Psalm 19. This is one of my favorite psalms. Uh, and I know that the, the truths in it are things that I need to be reminded of regularly. If I had to summarize Psalm 19 in one statement, uh, I, I think it would be something like this, is that God has revealed himself both in nature and in Scripture in the revelation of who he is, that requires a response from us. Again, God has revealed himself in in nature and in scripture, and that revelation requires a response from us. This morning we'll see Psalm 19 that God is, he's constantly showing us who he is, both, again, through the created world, the created world, the created order, and his written word. Uh, People are constantly responding to this revelation 
No one doesn't respond. Everyone responds, but it's going to be in one of two ways. Either, as we saw in Romans, they suppress the truth, which is our default, that no, I don't like that. I'm I'm not going to agree with that. I'm going to reject that. So it's either through rejection and suppression, or as David, the author of this psalm does, it's in humble repentance and submission to this God. Psalm 19, it's organized into pretty much three sections. Uh, The three points we'll look at today is uh, from verses 1 through 6, the general revelation of God, the general revelation of God, and then verses 7 through 11, the special revelation of God, and then the concluding verses 12 through 14, uh, the appropriate response to this revelation. So the general revelation of God, the special revelation of God, and then the appropriate response. And so let's dive into Psalm 19. Let's start with the the first six verses to see our first point, the general revelation of God. Verse 1 here, I think it really gives us the thesis statement of this psalm. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The, the theme of speaking to convey information is seen over and over again throughout these verses. In verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day, it says in verse 2, pours out speech. And night to night, reveals knowledge. It says, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out, it says, through all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. The created world here, it's personified by being attributed with the ability to speak. What we hear on the news, what we hear in social media from entertainment, from Hollywood, and from the culture at large, we hear all these voices, but those aren't the only voices speaking to us. God's created world, it's it's constantly speaking, proclaiming, proclaiming to the rest of God's creation. The voice, it's going out, it says, at all times, continually conveying information, is always speaking to us, always teaching us something, telling us something. And what are the heavens saying here? What are the skies revealing? What are they declaring? It's the glory of God, the glory of God. And what is the glory of God? If, if you've grown up anywhere around here where we're in the, the, the buckle of the Bible belts, we're all probably familiar with that term, the glory of God. We've all heard it. We all probably think We know what it means, but if you had to describe that term, the glory of God, to someone who has never set foot in a church and has no uh, basis for understanding of that, could you convey that to them? Could you articulate that to them in a way that they could understand? Uh, This Hebrew word for glory in the Bible, it's used throughout the Bible in different ways. Uh, At times it is used to describe wealth or honor or worship, but it has this underlying idea of weight, of weightiness, of heaviness. I love the way that John Piper puts it uh, in a a paper called What is God's Glory? He says, defining the glory of God, it's really impossible because he says that the the word glory, uh, it's it's more like the word beauty than the word basketball, right? If you're trying to to define a basketball to somebody, you could say it's it's round and orange and has some stripes and it bounces. But when you try to put the word beauty into words, it's very, very difficult, he says, He goes on to say elsewhere that the the glory of God, it's the infinite beauty and the infinite greatness of God's manifold perfections, his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, his love, his omnipotence, all of those things manifest to us. Another way I've heard it, uh, I don't know who did did it first, said it first, but 
Remember Jason, I think I heard it from him years and years ago, was that the glory of God, it's the manifestation of God's godness, of who he is as God. Not only are the, the heavens and the skies continually singing this song of praise that describes the beauty and majesty of God, but, but all of creation is joining in in this song. It says, day to day and night to night reveals the power of this creator God. It says, there's no speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard. This song, it testifies to the existence and the majesty of God, and it goes out throughout all the earth to the ends of the world. Look at the second half of verse four there. The psalmist, he moves from this idea of speech, of conveying knowledge to the senses of sight and of feeling. Look at the second half of verse four. In them, he, God, has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing that is hidden from its heat. See, weddings in the ancient Near East weren't like weddings today. Back then, it wasn't the bride who came up and walked the aisle. It was the groom who came to meet his bride. And so picture this groom who comes out of this tent, glowing with this radiance and joy and excitement, eager to meet his bride. And in that same way, the sun bursts forth from below the horizon, joyfully singing praise to its creator. Or like a strong man who joyfully, like a mighty warrior who, who runs his race with joy. And notice it says there in verse five or verse six, there is nothing that is hidden from the heat of the sun. Nothing can escape the heat of the sun. The sun gives clear testimony of the existence of God and the nature of God to everyone who feels and experiences the sun's warmth and its light. Out of every person who has ever lived, no one can say they did not know that God exists. No one can honestly say that. Paul, again, makes this crystal clear. Romans 1, we, we looked at it earlier. It says, for what can be known about God, in verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely, specifically, God's eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. No one can say, I, I didn't know, I didn't see. Uh, Jason said, I'm originally from Tulsa. I grew up near 11th and Mingo, and I've got to say, living in Tahlequah, I mean, you poor, poor city dwellers who live in these big cities, I guess Tahlequah's, Tulsa's big compared to Tahlequah, but you don't have the luxury of just walking outside and seeing the stars like we do in the smaller towns, just marveling at the stars I've got to go up to the Boundary Waters a few times to uh, go canoe camping for a, for, for a week at a time. And it's, if you haven't heard of the Boundary Waters, it's this huge protected area between uh, the U.S. and Canada. It's got over 1,500 miles of canoe routes and literally spread over a million acres of pristine protected wilderness. And I'm telling you, you go out there, there are no cell towers, there are no houses, there are no lights for literally hundreds of miles. And you walk outside of your tents in the middle of the night, and you look up at the sky, you will be moved to tears. You did, you did, you just, there's no way you could have known there were that many stars in the sky, the radiance of the countless stars twinkling above you. It's almost like you can hear them, like you can feel them 
and it literally takes your breath away. Now, some of the most awe-inspiring, worshipful moments I've ever had was when I saw my smallness compared to God's creation, standing under the stars, trying to count them, uh, standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, or seeing just this fierce, terrifying thunderstorm above me. The psalmist says in Psalm 8, 3 and 4, God, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, and he just seems to trail off. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him? It says there's no speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard. The song, it testifies to the existence and the majesty of God. It goes out again through the whole worth of the whole world to the end of the earth there. Jesus says in Matthew 5 that the Father in heaven makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. Every person throughout the world sees God's creation, the, the evil and the good. As the heat of the sun is felt by all the testimony of creation that continually exclaims, God did this. God is the one who made me. That song was heard by all. Again, no one complete ignorance. That's why David says in Psalm 14 and again in Psalm 53, he says, the fool says in his heart, there's no God. No one can honestly, objectively look at the earth, look at creation and say, this came from nothing. And that's a great place to start when you, whenever you're engaging with unbelievers. Start with creation. Start with the basics. Don't, don't be intimidated by thinking that you've got to answer the evolutionary biologist who's holding to Darwinian evolution and, well, I've got to have some scientific argument for that. No, don't, don't worry about that. Don't take the bait whenever they bring those things up. Keep the focus on the truth. God made these things. You know somewhere down in your being, God did this. There is a God, and as God's moral creatures, you will one day stand before him knowing you have done wrong. What are you going to do with that? There's a great example of this in Acts 17, 24. Paul, he's in Athens, uh, the, the Areopagus. He starts with the fact, he says, that there is a God who created the world and everything in it. And then he moves on to show them sin and show them God's answer, which was his son, Jesus Christ. I, I believe that one of the most important doctrines that we so easily overlook today is the doctrine of creation. That, that God created the universe out of nothing, the circumstances of that. Uh, mankind is created in his image. And again, out of nothing, in the implications that has on our daily lives today. Uh, I'm sure everyone in this room has either heard their parents say to them, or as parents, you have said to your kids, whenever you tell them to do something and they say, why? Say, what do you mean, why? I told you to do it, so do it. Because I say so. Maybe you heard, like me, over and over again from my parents, my house, my rules, right? It's the same thing there. Why do I get to make the rules for my house? Because it's my house. My kid's name is not on the deed. They don't pay the utility bills. They don't keep the house up there. So they don't get to determine the rules for our family. My wife and I own it. We have that prerogative alone. But how often, though, how often do we act like ignorant, little, presumptuous children before our God, 
either explicitly or just implicitly with our attitudes and our heart posture by saying that we are going to define right and wrong. God, I'm going to tell you how I'm going to live. We'll see how that goes. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So why? Why must we obey God? It's his house. His house, his rules. Brothers and sisters, let us not dare to presume to come before our infinite creator and say, I'm going to call the shots now. I'm going to tell you how I'm going to live. As children, we wouldn't dare say that to our earthly parents without fearing some repercussion. So why would we dream of acting that way toward the almighty creator of the universe? Let me give you some application that may sting a little bit here before we move on. Every single aspect of creation, from the tiny little crustaceans in the ocean to the magnificent stars to, to just plain boring dirt, it all, even us, we are declaring something. We are singing something. We are proclaiming something to the rest of, our, rest of creation with our experience. What we all are demonstrating, whether we realize it or not, what we're living for, what we're worshiping. What are you worshiping? There's a statement that's been made by many people. I first heard it from Tim, Killers, Tim Keller, so he gets the credit here. He, as a quote, says, Everyone worships. There is no one who does not worship. Everyone worships. He says, you don't get to decide whether or not you worship. Everyone worships. The only choice you get is what you worship. And we are all created to worship. And, and all of us are constantly worshiping something. John Calvin says our hearts are idol factories. You are worshiping something. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's sex and pleasure. Maybe it's power or fame. Maybe it's comfort and security. Maybe it's something as seemingly innocuous as, as just a good job or your spouse or your children. We are all worshiping something. And as such, we are all declaring to the world around us what is worthy of our lives, what is worthy of our love and our time. Will you listen to the voice of creation? Will you join in with them to worship our creator and king. Look at verses 7 through 11. We'll see our second point here. The special revelation of God. In these verses, we're going to see God's word, what it does, and what God's word is worth here. Verse 11 here, we'll see the first thing that God's word does. The first thing it does, verse, um, verse 11, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law here, it, literally it's the Hebrew word Torah, which you've probably heard. It literally means instruction. And notice the key shift here. So while the entire creation reveals the existence and the character of God, that's really all creation can do. The general revelation of nature is not enough to save. It is enough for us to, to stand before God and say, I knew it's enough to condemn us there. But only God's revealed word, his special revelation, only that word is sufficient to save us or to revive us or restore our life to our soul. But before you go on, think about the implications here. What did David, the writer of this psalm, what did he have for God's word back whenever this psalm was written? 
It was the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and likely probably Job, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and maybe some portions of Samuel by this time. So that's the, the entirety, the extent of God's revealed word at that time. But how could those portions of Scripture revive the soul? They didn't have the Romans road. How could they get somebody saved? They didn't have John 3, 16. They didn't have Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All they had was the law. And so we ask the question, if what Paul says in Romans 3, 19, and 20 is true, where he says that the law cannot save us, the law can only reveal our, our sinful status before God, then how can David here say that the law restores life to the soul? Well, God's law, plain and simple, first and foremost, it reveals God. We were created to know God and to have life in him through a relationship with him. So while the law was not the gospel of Jesus Christ, the law was the precursor to the gospel of Jesus. Paul says in, in Galatians 3.24 that the law was, was our guardian, our schoolmaster. Uh, it always pointed forward to Jesus as the sacrificial lamb. So we know obedience to the law couldn't save anyone in the Old Testament. So what saved God's people under the Old Covenant back then was the same thing that saves us today. It's faith. Paul shows us this in Romans 4. Abraham wasn't counted righteous by God because of his works. He was counted righteous by God because he believed God. He believed God. The people in the Old Testament, they were saved by faith in God as they, they looked forward to the sacrificial lamb that God would one day provide once and for all as we look backward to what Jesus did on the cross. We are all born sinners. We are all bearing the curse of Adam. This is the doctrine of original sin. I love Ephesians 2, this beautiful passage that shows us that we were all once dead in our sins and trespasses, all following happily after Satan. But God, he takes spiritually dead people and he makes them alive in Christ through the gracious work of the gospel. God in his mercy, he doesn't just leave us at the, at the, the mercy of general revelation to leave us to say, oh, there's a God and he's holy and magnificent and we're sinners I guess we're out of luck. God doesn't leave us there, but what he does is he, he condescends to reveal himself explicitly to his people through the prophets in the Old Testament to show them this is God. This is who he is. This is what he is like. Follow him. It is only in the revealed words of God as handed down by the apostles and the prophets that we are able to be revived, to be restored to life in God. And so this law that restores the soul, it says there, this law is perfect. That word perfect, it means complete. It means sound. It means unblemished. The idea here is that God's word lacks nothing. It is sufficient to save. We see this so clearly in John 20, verses 30 through 31. The apostle John, as he's concluding his gospel, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which they're not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the, the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. What we have in God's revealed word, it is sufficient. 
It's what we need to save us for anyone to believe and by believing have eternal life in Christ. Hear Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The plain, simple, boring gospel. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You don't need to dress up God's word to make it relevant, to make it powerful. God's word is sufficient to save. God's word, not gimmicks, not man-centered philosophies, not well-laid-out arguments. It is God's word that saves. The gospel is revealed in Scripture is the power of God into salvation for all who believe, Paul says in Romans 1.16. Trust in that. Throughout these verses, the psalmist, he's going to use kind of synonymous words uh, to refer to Scripture. We see the law of God's word is perfect. Next, we see it's the testimony of God. Here we see the second thing that God's word does. Not only does God's word give life to spiritually dead sinners, but it, his testimony is sure and it makes wise the simple the Hebrew word here for sure is the word amen. It, it means confirmed. It's, it's, it's established. It's verified. It's proven to be true. This word is sure, and it's what is needed to change those who are simple, it says. It makes wise the simple. Simple here, it means open-minded, but not open-minded in a good sense. It means they're childish. They just, they believe whatever they're told. They're easily led astray. Makes them wise. My older kids, I'm glad they're not here. They're at grandma and grandpa's. Uh, they're extremely smart. They don't like when I embarrass them in sermons. My kids are extremely smart. They know lots of information. They excel in pretty much every one of their, uh, their subjects in class. So they're very, very smart, but they do a lot of stupid things that get them into a lot of trouble all the time. And so I constantly have to have this conversation with them. There's a difference between you being smart and having good grades, and having knowledge, and you having discernment, wisdom, making the right choice. And that's what wisdom is. It's, it's discernment. Godly wisdom means that we, we do what God says. We do what honors God. I don't care if you can pass your math test. Do what honors God. Only the Word of God can give us such wisdom. Again, going back to this doctrine of the, the sufficiency of Scripture, here we have to be extremely careful because in our day and age where we have all of these different philosophies trying to uh, tell us how to have better church and how to have a better walk with Christ and how to be more effective for the kingdom and how to, how to change the culture, all of those things, there's nothing wrong with using the wisdom of God's common grace that he's given to smart people who are very learned in their fields. But all of that stuff, all of that must always supplement the truth we find in Scripture. It must never be our primary source for godly wisdom and practical Christian living. Those resources we have outside of Scripture have to be run through the, the grid of Scripture, and we have to go there. We must subordinate those ideas to God's authoritative word. God's word makes wise the simple. Look at verse 8 there. The precepts of the Lord are right, 
and they're rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. God's word, it says here, it is right. It is pure. The world around us, you can clearly see, it does not like God's truth. It is opposed to God's truth. Lost people are constantly trying to call God, the creator of the universe, to their bar of human reasoning, to accuse God of wrongdoing, or to question his goodness, to question his wisdom. Anytime we try to hold God's revealed truths before them, they'll say, no, your God is wrong. How dare God do that or be that way or expect that? Christian, you do not have to defend God. God is big enough to defend himself. You should not apologize for what Scripture says when spiritually dead people are offended by it. Now, caveat here, don't be a jerk, right? God's word is offensive enough for us to try to make it more offensive. But the precepts of the Lord, they are right. They are pure. The third thing we we see here in God's word in verse 8 is that God's word, it rejoices the heart. It rejoices our heart. It's easy in this life to find things to be angry over and saddened over and seeing the effects of of living in a sin-sick world, we should be angered by things we see. We should be saddened by things we see. Jesus was angered and he was saddened whenever he saw hurting people taken advantage of or led astray. Seeing people joyfully living in their sin and rejecting God, that should weigh heavily on us. Jesus promises us in John 13 or John 16, 33, that in this world, you will have tribulation. You will suffer. But he also says that take heart because I've overcome the world. So right now, you probably have reasons to not rejoice. Anybody can find those. Maybe you're dealing with sickness and disease or or death and destruction or just wondering what the future holds for you. Maybe it's the consequences of the sins of others on your life or a loved one. Or maybe it's the frustration of your own besetting sin. But even in the midst of such heaviness and burden, God's word, it's able to rejoice our hearts even when we're weighed down in this life. As I was meditating on these verses earlier this week, I, I couldn't help but kind of chuckle because when I, when, I, when I hear the words, the precepts of the Lord, the, 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 if I'm honest, the first thing that comes to my mind isn't rejoices the heart. It's just not. And then I started thinking about how we live in this antinomian society that is fiercely opposed to rule and restraints. Laws by nature reveal our desire, our, our depravity, our, our natural inclination to break out against someone saying, do this. You can't tell me what to do. I don't want to be told what to do. We consider laws by nature oppressive and constraining, but the laws of God, which seem so oppressive to so many, they're actually a cause for joy. They give us life, true happiness and freedom in our captivity to Christ. Where the world promises freedom by casting off rule and restraint, God promises us that his rules actually bring life. 1 John 5, 3 tells us that we are to obey God's laws because they're not burdensome. They might feel that way, but they're not. That's one of the paradoxes of the Christian life, that in total surrender to the will of God, total submission to him, that is when we are truly free. The fourth thing we see, 
Fourth thing we see that God's word does is that it enlightens the eyes. The lost culture around us will tell you if you believe what the Bible says, you are narrow-minded. You're blinded by outdated religion. Get with the times. But nothing could be further from the truth. God's word, it gives light to blind eyes. It causes us to really see truth and reality. One quick takeaway from this. When you're sharing the gospel with your lost friends and family, and I sincerely hope you are, or at least you're working toward sharing the gospel with people around you, don't resort to in the conversation going, well, I think this, or, or to me in my experience, this. Those things are subjective. Anybody can make an argument that way. Your opinions can save no one. What you think can save no one, even solid biblical apologetics, and I love apologetics. I could nerd out over that. But that's a great discipline to know, but well-reasoned, well-thought-out arguments about the historicity of Christ or the, the veracity of Scripture, all of those things, none of those arguments make dead people spiritually alive or blind people to see. Only the living Word of God can do that. So when you're engaging with unbelievers, and what we should always be saying is, the Bible says, God says here and show them that. And they might say, well, that's stupid. I don't believe that. Okay, well, the Bible says, because we're trusting that it's the Bible that has God's word, that God's word has the power to save. Trust his power here. Look at verse nine. We see the fifth thing that God's word does. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and they are righteous altogether. Maybe you've noticed that there's a theme going on here. Every verse seems to be about God's word, the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandment, the rules. But the fear of the Lord seems a little bit different here. Why is that? I think it's because the fear of the Lord is a product of the revelation of God through his written word. Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One, that is insight. Matthew Henry, he, uh, old Puritan, he describes the fear of the Lord this way. He says, it is that which encompasses true religion and godliness as prescribed in God's word, reigning in the heart and practiced throughout life. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. It is to last forever. We also see that God's word, it is true, and it is altogether completely righteous. Jesus says in John 17, 17, God, your word is truth. Jesus doesn't say, God, your word is true. It's not a truth out of many. It's not true in that it conforms to some outside objective of truth. It is truth. It is the standard of truth. So don't let the claims of especially this growing movement of progressive Christianity cause you to doubt the truthfulness of what we have here in God's word. The same majestic, all-powerful creator who spoke galaxies into existence. He is smart enough and wise enough and big enough to give us his words and then preserve those words for us so that we can know him and be saved through these words. The opinions of man come and go, but God's word will stand forever. We've seen what God's word does. Look to see what God's word is worth here in verses 10 
through 11. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. God's word is better than those shiny things that this world has to offer. And I'm honest, it doesn't feel like that a lot of times. When I see those shiny things, whatever that might be for you, I go, yeah, I know what your word says, God, but uh, it doesn't feel that way. God's word is worth more. It is better. If we heed the truths of God's word, we will be warned of many dangers. And we will hopefully recognize them and see them and, and stay away from them and escape the consequences of them. Two things that God's word warns us of. Two things. I think the first one we see throughout scripture is God's word warns us of sin. Warned of sin. Proverbs 7, 21 through 23, talking about the adulterous woman, the wayward woman. It says, with much seductive speech, she persuades him, the simple man. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter or a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare. And listen to this. This man, he does not know it will cost him his life. He doesn't know. The severity of sin is something we need to keep before us. Matthew 5, 29 through 30, Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out of your face and throw it in the fire. Those aren't nice words, but it's serious he says it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. See, we'd see many more examples, but for the sake of time, Scripture warns us of sin. The second thing Scripture warns us of is false teaching. We see false teaching all around us, like the prosperity gospel, the therapeutic gospel, which says God came to save you from your, your lack of self-esteem instead of your sin. Matthew 7, 15 through 20, Jesus warns us to watch out for false teachers who are dressed like sheep, but they're wolves. You will know them by their fruit. Colossians 2, 8 says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition. Acts 17 shows us how to practically do that. Uh, we see Paul uh, going to the synagogue. It says here in Acts 17, 11, these Jews in Berea, they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? Because they received the word with all eagerness. And then what did they do? They went home and they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And so how are we warned of false teachers? Read your Bibles. Know God's word. God's creation proclaims the reality of God. God's written word reveals even more of himself so that we can know him in a more accurate and saving way. Let's look at the, the final section of Psalm 19 here where we see the appropriate response to the revelation of God. The appropriate response to the revelation of God. Verses 12 and 13 say, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. The revelation from creation and from scripture, it leads the psalmist to this one conclusion. Who can find fault with this God? Who can find anything wrong with him? He is beyond fault. 
He is beyond imperfection. He is holy and perfect and good. And so this revelation of this perfect and holy nature of God, it leads to the psalmist to really recognize, I'm not holy and I'm not perfect and I'm not good before this creator. I love Isaiah 6 verses 1 through 6, where Isaiah sees this vision of the Lord uh, seated on the throne, high and lifted up, and the seraphim are calling to one another, and the foundations of the threshold of the temple and the threshold shake. And what does Isaiah say in response? He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am coming undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And why does he say this? Because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, Without seeing a glimpse of this perfect standard of God's holy character, you will always be able to say, I'm not that bad. You will always find someone worse. But when the bright light of God's word pierces through and shines on your heart, we see every spot, every blemish, and it's more nasty than we would ever want to admit or imagine. Remember what I said earlier, the thoughts you have about God are the most important thoughts you will ever have because they affect all of life and and what you believe about yourself. It is only when we see this more accurate view of the holy character of God that we are able to see, like, I am hopeless. I cannot go to church enough. I can't be nice enough. I can't pray enough. I deserve hell. David here, he pleads with God, declare me innocent from hidden faults and keep me from presumptuous sins. How can God do that? How can he, when we see how guilty we are, how could God declare us innocent of our faults? God is a righteous judge who cannot overlook sin. He will not excuse it. He will not leave it unpaid for. That would compromise who he is and his holiness, his righteous character. He cannot, he will not do that. The only way that God can deal with our our sin without condemning us eternally in hell is through that substitutionary life and death and resurrection of Christ on your behalf. Where Martin Luther calls the great exchange to where Jesus takes our sin and puts it on himself on the cross. And then he takes his perfect righteousness and he places that on those who have faith in him. God will not look away at our sin. It will be punished either in Christ on the cross for those who place their faith in him or for sinners in hell. When our sins have been forgiven by the precious blood of Christ, we will not think lightly. We will not presume upon the mercy, the forgiveness of God. That's why he says, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins, from arrogant presumption over my sin. I love Romans 6, 1 through 11. What shall we say then, Paul says, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound. He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 11, he says, so you also, you must consider yourself dead to sin, and alive to God and Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 says this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And he says, You are not your own, 
You're not your own. You don't belong to yourself because, in verse 24, you were bought with a price, the blood of God, your creator. So glorify God in your body. The Bible will have nothing of cheap grace, of easy believism. Grace that saves is always grace that changes. Grace that saves is always grace that changes. We've already looked at Romans 1. Let's go back there and and start closing with this to see the way in which people can respond to the revelation of this amazing God. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it. God has plainly revealed himself to us. Some will continue in willful unbelief and they will reject and they will suppress God's truth they encounter every day in creation and the law of God written on their hearts, as Romans 2 says, and the written word of God revealed in scripture. But that's not David. Instead, he responds with this resolution. I am resolved. I will press into the grace of this holy creator God to seek his mercy, to submit his will in life to God. Verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable, be pleasing to you in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So in closing, like in the animate creation, the sun, moon, stars, the mountains, the rest of God's handiwork, right now, whether you know it or not, you are singing something. You are declaring something. You are worshiping someone or something with your life. Are you, like the rest of creation, fulfilling your role, fulfilling your purpose to glorify your creator as he has revealed himself in scripture? Or are you worshiping something else, some other small, insignificant aspect of creation that will one day burn up, that can't give you joy, that can't save you? Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray.